My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome to our fourth and final episode for this month's uh, special podcast series for Black History Month. This is It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast. We're your hosts, Cami Ahrens. And I'm TJ Smith. And we have what's perhaps one of my most favorite interviews in the Foxfire archives. So I'm extremely biased um, as we present this interview today. Please bear that in mind. But we are going to be sharing some excerpts from an interview with Anna Tut conducted in um, the 1970s. Anna was actually born um, and raised for part of her childhood in Augusta or just outside of Augusta, Georgia. Her father worked as a tenant farmer and then he passed away when she was a child and her mother had to move them up to uh, Cornelia, Georgia, where her paternal grandmother lived. So Anna has kind of this interesting two-part story because I think she has two really different experiences that may not come across in these interview excerpts, but if you um, read a copy of Foxfire 8, there's more of her interview published there. And she talks, um, you know, about as a child, kind of her experiences in a, a Jim Crow society. And then when she moves up here, some of that societal tension actually seems to go away a little bit, whether she's choosing to share less or not. But um, it does seem, I don't know about you, TJ, but it does seem in the interviews we have that race relationships in the mountains were, I don't know, less violent. <laughs> yeah, it was very different. So when we talk about her being sort of born and raised for part of her life in Augusta, Augusta, Georgia is more uh, middle to south Georgia. Um, it's in a, an area that would have been more traditionally sort of the plantation agriculture system, flatter land, larger swaths of land, larger, larger properties for growing. And that and that part of the South, the deep, the deeper South, um, certainly saw the brunt of sort of the the, the, the atrocities surrounding Jim Crow. Um, whereas as you move further north and you move into a landscape that's very different, where you don't have this long tradition of plantation farming, um, large you know large agricultural operations, you see those tensions. Uh, lesson not that they don't exist not that there aren't um, uh, oppressive policies in place in Appalachia it's just not as prevalent as you see in other regions of the of the south um, and that's something that you do take note of in her in her interview and the things that she's talking about you know sharecropping really wasn't a thing up here mm -hmm. so share you know the sharecropping system was a means for um, powerful white landowners to sort of continue a similar practice as slavery and a lot of the similar dynamics that we saw in slavery, uh, just with different rules. Um, but here, um, we don't have a sharecropping system because we don't have these large agricultural spaces like they do in the, in the lower parts of the South. So, uh, we definitely see a difference and we hear that in these interviews. We heard it with Carrie Stewart. We heard it with Bruce uh, Mosley and, uh, and now we're, we're hearing it again with Anna Tut. I also think it's interesting that her move 
also involves a shift from a patriarchal system to a matriarchal system. Mm. And again, when you read her full interview, this it's more apparent. It may not come out as much in the excerpts that we've provided today. But when she's living on this farm outside of Augusta, she's focused on you know, her father mm-hmm. and her father's experiences and her family's experiences in relation to her father's position as a tenant farmer. And then when they move up here after her father passes away, it becomes all about her grandmother. Mm-hmm. And her grandmother really became this like central figure in her life. And Anna did not have an easy life. Um, as you'll hear today, Anna, you know, experienced obviously some some racial tensions. She experienced some really abusive relationships mm-hmm. um, and some mental hardships as well. And, you know, through all of that, I think she has an inner strength that serves as her foundation. And she really seems to attribute that to her experiences with her grandmother. Yes. So it's it's kind of interesting to see that shift and how, how much that impacted her life. Yeah. And we, I mean, we see it early on, uh, some of the earliest memories of her father uh, that she shares with with the students are around the practice of lynching, and something that she wouldn't she you know he's he's trying to protect his children from witnessing the horrors, but she talks about the hanging tree that's yeah. that's nearby, and, and she doesn't explicitly state that it's a lynching, but I think it's pretty well assumed yes. um, from the way she's speaking of it. But irregardless of whether it was legal or illegal you can sense the tear that's coming from this experience yes. and you can tell that her father is afraid you know and he's afraid I, for his family he's af- afraid he, i think the his majority of his fear is his fear for his family and their well-being yeah, and and yeah. you can hear that in, in the way that she talks about him but he, he also makes this chilling statement that if they come for me he will have to go yeah and i i just can't even imagine the experience of white men who are in a hanging mood coming and knocking on your door and telling you you're a black man you have to do what we say and right. going out into the night into right. this crowd go and and what what kim is referring to is he's going out to cut down a man yeah to out take of a, the man down to take the man down from mm-hmm. the tree and and dispose of the body that's a pretty horrific experience and one that Anna's recalling from her young childhood in augusta um so that sort of like that's where your childhood starts. <laughs> yeah. And then you sort of witness this progression of her sort of overcoming and going through all these different hardships. And, and it's remarkable, the woman that came out on the other end. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I hope you take the chance to go and visit our website purely so you can see a picture of Anna. Yeah. Because yeah. she just has this beautiful, infectious smile. And you yes. just know that she she was a good person. Well, and, and this what was interesting for me to, to learn is that her niece was best friends with my wife's aunt. And so they they know that family. My wife's side of the family knows the Tut family. And we hope one day to be able to do an interview with Phyllis about her Aunt Anna Tut. Yeah. And learn more about, about this amazing woman um, that we had the privilege of listening to today. Yes. And... She, alongside Carrie Stewart, will be featured in our upcoming book, which is still a few years out, but we're pretty excited to be spending some extra time with Anna and being able to really highlight her experiences. But for now, we hope you enjoy these interview excerpts. And again, as with the other two interviews, if you want to learn more, if you want to read more of Anna's story, pick up a copy of Foxfire 8. Um, There's a pretty well-written article on her there, as well as some additional images that I think are just wonderful. So I hope you enjoy and uh, make sure you join us 
Next month, we'll be doing a series on midwifery in Appalachia for uh, the month of March. No, see you then. Do you think families used to be closer? Sure, sure. They used to have prayer, blessings at the big table and things like that. Were the grandparents and and other maybe single members, older members of the family sort of included in this? Yeah. And more, you know how now you've got grandma and granddaddy off in the nursing home and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like families are more are not so close as they no, used to be? No, 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 And uh, what have separated a lot of the families, I think these mills and plants and jobs and stuff like that, as I say, the father, he comes in, the mother's going out, and the children are left alone. Some of them like to rear themselves and don't know what to do. And children need uh, their parents. If we used to, when we lived in the country, which is different from now, we come in from school about this time, a little bit later on, and my mother was always there in a rocking chair by a big open fire or something. And if it's in the wintertime, my father's out hunting or something like that or cutting wood. And they'd always have something cooked up. We'd go to the stove, look in the warmer and get something to eat, and then we'd go out and play around, <coughs> and then we'd do our chores, taking in bringing in chips or going to the spring or the branch or getting water for the night and toting in wood and stuff like that. But now the children coming home, mama's nowhere to be seen in Pompa either because they're on a job. And I said that wants the material things of the world, I think is what got it. That's why the children don't like they are, I believe. We automatically just come in looking for our grandmother to be there when we got home, or our parents to be. And if we didn't find them at home, we wonder what was the matter. We'd go hunting for them. But I think the plants and things is what. And then people don't make the children go to school or to church or Sunday school like they used to. As I say, we used to automatically, we grew up, and it's just natural for us to get up, you know, when Sunday morning comes, we get up, putting on our little Sunday clothes, going to church and Sunday school. But now sometimes, go to Sunday school, the road is just full of little children playing ball and stuff like that, mm -hmm. see? Where if you don't train them now, while they're little, yeah. which way are they going to go later on? I blame the parents for that. They could send them. And then if they got up grown and want to change, that would be their business. Did your brother get to finish high school? Yes, some junior high. Junior high, and then what does he do now? He works at the Reese Hardware. Reese Hardware? Mm-hmm. He's been he? there about 30-something years. Really? Gosh. Yeah. Yeah, we all finished uh, high school. My sister up there finished high school. And he did too, and I did. Was that customary for most of the people up here? Yes, up here it was, but in the country it wasn't. Fourth grade yeah. or something like that, you know. Because we had to stop out and knock comb stalk, cotton stalk, clean up new ground, burn brows and stuff like that. And start long in February, I believe, like later part of February or March, somewhere like that. And then uh, some part of December we'd go to school something like that, and if it was scrap cotton to pick or something like that, we had to help get that out. 
So we didn't get much schooling in there. But up here, did y'all go the yes, same ma'am. way as the white children? And y'all went about eight or nine months a That's year? That's right. Sure. But that was just the way people live then. Right, I know. Yeah. I understand. That's just the way they live. And I can recall one time, I know, or once or twice, we children would wake up and hear my father walking in the house in the dark. And we said, Pa, we called him Pa, Pa, what's the matter? And he said, they are hanging so-and-so-and-so over there. I can't recall the name. And it was about, I guess, a mile, maybe, across a creek over there. And it a, seemed like the tree was a white-looking oak tree. Now, I think they say a hanging tree never had any leaves on it or something. It's just a dead-like tree, you know. And they hanging so and so on. Did they leave the rope up all the time? No. Oh, no. no. Oh, we children never did see it or anything. I don't know whether our father kept it from us or what it was. And um, he What said, were they hanging in for? Well, I don't know. Was it legal? I, I don't know about that. I was small, see, and he would say like this. Y'all be quiet, because if they come and ask Pa to help take him down, I will have to hope. And naturally, we were super frightened. Yeah. But that's all that was said. Cook, for you. Well, call it. In the wintertime, call it greens, baked sweet potato, sweet potato pie. You had two big hogs out in the pen, big as elephants almost. And uh, long about this time of year, it's fresh meat and um, cornbread. She had a cow, buttermilk, butter. She had chickens on the yard, and she'd always put the chickens up by the uh, two or three days or more and feed them. She'd make the, the feet up with a meal and, and water, make it stiff like that, you know, and feed them buttermilk. And chicken tastes more like chicken than you do now. Oh, well, you know, you eat chicken now, that's that chicken. But it had a flavor to it. But now she wouldn't just go to the yard and get them like that. She'd put them up, fry. And she knew how to curl out the hens, you know, if there's as a laying stage, you'd make dumplings out of it or something like that. And we had plenty to eat, wasn't the finest, but we had plenty peas, collards, and the spring ears, cabbage, beets, corn, squash, tomatoes, onions. Did y'all can much? Yes. Oh, she loved the can. She'd take the apple peels and make jelly out of them and take the apples and make uh, apple, butter. apple butter or preserves. Yeah. Now that's good, apple, apple preserves, pals, anything cannibal. She, she was a thrifty, uh, I say a conservative, or uh, I don't know how to place it, but she wasn't an extravagant person, you know. I wish you had known her. To me, she was just beautiful. Yeah.
Now, instead of roaming the streets of house to house or something, she always had a little basket. Uh, they don't make them like that now. They were strong baskets with a little handle to them. But they were weaved like these big cotton baskets and things. Yeah. And she had that with quilt scraps or her crocheting or knitting. No, not a knitting, her crocheting. Yeah, crochet and stuff, uh, quilt scraps and her scissors thread and that. And she'd be sitting by the, the house was built different from this. There's big fireplace with a beautiful mound like that and one in the other bedroom in the kitchen and the dining room went back that way. She'd always be sitting by the fire making her quilt, pardon quilts or sewing on something like that. She made a home for us. Very, very quiet person and seemed to have had foresight. Indians are noted for that, you know, and as I told you, she was that Mohawk or Black Hawk Indian. With beautiful part, part Indian or completely full She was, she was full. Full blooded Indian. Full blooded Indian. It's different tribes of them, you know, and she was the dark type with beautiful, wavy, black hair. And she didn't, now, she was Indian, y'all didn't have any, she didn't have any problem here as far as, you know, we've noticed up our way that they didn't like, the, a lot of people didn't like the Indians. Oh. Well, I said she was full blood. I, I, so far as I know that she was, I really and don't so know. She might have been just part, uh -huh. you know, but I do know she had Indian blood in her, because she used to tell us about that. Mm -hmm. And all of her family was real dark with soft black hair. Well, did she say where they came from? No. Mm -hmm. But that was your father's mother? My father's mother, that's right. I wish I could have lived the kind of life that she did. So now, you, you take me, I go, go, go all the time. She's a stay-at-home sometimes. People get tired of seeing, you know, but I don't even go all the time. Yeah. But now she could sit and, and just contented. Because she had got up and... Cause I knew her when she was a young woman. I guess she was about in her thirties when I first knew her, though. I can't recall exactly. But she never was a gadabout person. She always was a home person, like, and she always took interest in us. Oh, we lived with our mother when our father left and went to Tennessee and North Carolina and all like that, dodging the draft and so forth. We just, we, if we decided we wanted to go stay with her, we'd go stay with her. She just lived down the road with these, you know. Yeah. And we always felt welcome. She yeah. always seemed interested in us. Now, she used to uh, iron, wash and iron for the boss. They wore those white celluloid, celluloid collars. Celluloid, yeah. Celluloid collars at that yeah. time, you know. And I can recall she'd have them iron up and have a clean cloth down in front of the fireplace and have those collars iron up just as pretty and hook them together and just have a row of them around that fireplace drying out, you know, where they use that silly starch on yeah. them. And she could do them so pretty. But we could go down there and to her home, look in the stove for something to eat or something. She had old high beds, rolling foot, wooden beds, and we wanted to stay all night, it was all right. Yeah. She's very nice. Do you feel like she's the person who's most influenced your life or anything? Yes, I think she had a lot to do with it. My mother was quite like 
Now I could talk to my mother, tell her anything. And um, wasn't ashamed or wasn't afraid. But my mother was a nervous type of a person. Not shaky and nervous. But she was, uh, so many times, I used to wake up in the night when I lived with my mother. We lived at Grove Town at that time. And she'd be rocking by open fireplace. And we said, Mama, what's going <coughs> on? She said, Mama's a little bit nervous. She said, I'll be all right, you all children going back. She said, I'll be all right. But now the sofa was shaking. She wasn't nervous. She was nervous. Like, she's quiet. And I never heard either one of them use an oath. But I give my grandmother credit for taking us. Now, and now I still say, my mother, she was quiet, but I still say my grandmother had the most influence. Mm -hmm. My mother didn't have too much say. She was a quiet type of person. Now she was not mulatta, but she was yellow skin, brown, soft, wavy hair. Mm-hmm. And low in stature, not too fat or anything, just medium height, very quiet, and was a church girl. Oh, say for instance, when I was in my teens, they used to have frolics, as they called them, or fish fries or suppers at home, and I always wanted to go follow the older and my mother would say like this, you're too young, if I was you, I wouldn't go. That's a real crowd or something like that. But now my grandmother said, could we go so and so and so and so No, stay at home. And we say, there's just a difference in the two. Mm-hmm. But now anything I want to talk over with my mother, mama was so and so and so, she explained to me when I said, both of them was good. And um, so I think the white people are nice to the colored people, and, and the colored people are nice to them up there. But most of the blacks went out of my area in the media mm. when I first came up here. Now, there was a few elderly people, I think, worked for such as the folks and the Paynes and the Kimses, I believe, and the Paynes, I believe. But, uh, they had those great big houses, you know. Yeah, right. Well, like some of them worked in them homes and read the children for years and years, but I didn't know too much about that. But I never uh, can recall any prejudice or meanness or well, like, anything like that among the white and colored here, you know. We got on all right to me. And I never was a person to... Uh, Anticipate, uh, anticipate, or either, pardon me, uh, think of, I don't know, I don't care how hard the goings was, or what I wanted, or needed, and didn't have. I never did think of going out, selling my body, or hustling, as they call it, for all this other stuff. I just learned to do that. I just wasn't that mm-hmm. type of a person. Because mm-hmm. I've had lots of experience in my lifetime searching, seeking for love that I never got. Because my life was all broken up by the divorce of my father when I was young and my mother. 
and things like that. So I always was out seeking for somebody. I guess I had a lot of it to give, and I looked, I wanted it back. Mm -hmm. I said, love was beautiful, you know, so I got tangled up with uh, one or two boyfriends because it was violent. So I've been beat up by, I was beat up by one driving. He was a beautiful dancer, swift, light, and he was very popular among the girls. But he was uh, kind of the notoriety type. Well, he was the type that you couldn't trust. He was uh, sneaky-like, you know. So I got involved with him. As I said, I'd been going with this older man. And I wanted marriage and a decent life and be a good mother and a good wife and a home. Those are the things that I always wanted, you know. I want to live decent. I didn't want to just live any kind of way out there. But this older man didn't seem to want marriage or anything, so I started going with this younger man. And he used to give me his money to keep for him. And so this older man came back when he saw that I was getting involved with this younger man. And uh, he came back and tricked me to go to the alto down here with him to pick up some passenger he drove taxi. And this uh, young man heard about it, and so he disguised himself and waited for me to come back. And when I came back, is it at night time, he approached me and said uh, he wanted his money that I had keeping, keeping for him. And I said, all right. I said, I'll go to the house and get it for my grandmother. And so I came to the house and got his money and gave it to him. And when I handed it to him, he knocked me to the ground. And when he knocked me to the ground, he was beating me in my face, see. Well, he was swift and fast, so I couldn't fight back. So I turned over on my back, and he hit me in my back here and knocked the breath out of me. I felt it when it just left out of me. And so he ran because I cried, screaming, and so he ran. Well, I got through with him. Oh, he hit me somewhere here in my eyes, I couldn't move, uh, couldn't focus it around without holding it still. Well, then I got involved with another one for a while, and I didn't care for him too much. I just don't like dirty, unbrown stuff. <coughs> I, I always look for <coughs> truth, honesty. And sincere. I just don't I like that, but well, I didn't go with this one too much. So I said I had the nervous breakdown in the meantime. And then when I came back, oh, I dated one or two <coughs> other men, but not for a while. And then I got involved with another one, was just about as bad as one that fought me. But this one didn't fight me. But he would threaten me all the time. Would threaten me, threaten me, threaten me. And he, he wasn't honest. He was still, it was very embarrassing to me because the white people here knew he was my friend, see? And I was working at the telephone company. And he'd go in stores and steal things, and the lady, the 
the cashier would she knew me where she'd stay. Uh, so and so and we store and we store and I said, Well he didn't have to steal for me. I said, I'll make my own living and he doesn't support me. She said, I know it uh, because I saw that too. So I kept whispering a little prayer, Lord, do so so. And it looked like the Lord wasn't asking me. So one one morning I got out of the bed and got on my knees right somewhere. I said, Lord, you can move him. I can't. I said, will you? So the Lord moved me and him. I've had a nervous breakdown and he went away and I never want to see him anymore. Never. But he was a handsome, good-looking man, young man. But I never want to see him anymore. He was just too dirty, sneaky, and low down. Well, see, I just didn't go for that. So, well, I don't think I've been involved seriously with anyone else since mm-hmm. then. That was back in the late 50s. My psychiatrist told me because I was too sincere. Yeah. You look for two. He said, you're looking for perfection and you won't find it. I said, well, if I'm true, why can't they be true? Was, I don't know. He said, but you won't find a perfect man. Said, I guess I'll just leave him alone, man. <laughs> Come down to the sincere truth. I like, I think marriage is beautiful. Of course, you don't find all of that now. There's true marriage anymore. Shoulder to shoulder. So many are married. No anything, you got some children separated or something. And I guess all that stemmed back to my childhood life, see. Yeah. Thinking of a home being torn up. Yeah. Little children, what did the little children think? There's mama, there's daddy. There you in between. You love mama, you love daddy. But what can you do? If people only knew yeah. how it would affect that little child. I don't want to say I look back with hate. Lots of people just like to bring up, you know. I don't want to do that. Right. Because I feel like people were living then as as was customary to live. Like different, I can't uh, phrase it like I want to, but in different stages of life or different ages. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>